Welcome to the Political R&D Podcast. I'm Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. Every day is Groundhog Day, but worse, Deirdre Mitchell McLean. I'm the year you can't remember, but somehow still wish you could forget, Robbie Krieger Smith. And this is the Political R&D Podcast. Hey, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. So, one year anniversary yesterday. Yes. Not of us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? We missed our own one year anniversary, actually. Yeah. But we all have to mark the one-year anniversary of the UCP's historic election. More votes than anybody. They had the hugest vote total. <laughs> and it didn't really end on a high note yesterday. But, there... but let's, let's start at the beginning. Yeah, has there been many high notes? <laughs> By the responses, I didn't really see many, but I, I do have a couple of, of high notes. Yeah, totally. Over-caffeinated lefties on Twitter, right? So, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, so as expected, uh, the UCP kind of bowled over the opposition parties, and the NDP and the UCP were the only two parties that made it to the legislature. Uh, the Liberal Party and the Alberta Party and the Freedom Conservative Party were all reduced to zero seats. Mm-hmm. And the summer of repeal proceeded. Oh. Yes, but it on well, did it summer of repeal? It was spring of repeal. Uh, there was a lot of stuff moving along there. Yeah, well, technically they weren't sworn in until sometime in May. So that's true. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, May, June, July, August. <laughs> um, you know, one of the first things they did, as promised, Bill One, they repealed the unpopular carbon tax and yes. replaced it with two carbon taxes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Two carbon taxes are better than one. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, as much as, as much as they did get, you know, a lot of kudos for replacing it uh, at the pump, we did get, you know, six months of, of reprieve. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And everybody saw that. Everybody could hear that change jingling in their pockets by December, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't think anybody's noticing the carbon tax now. No, no. Ye- yesterday, that. I filled up my big gas guzzling SUV for $25. <laughs> oh, my God. I, actually, I think it was 29 from wow. empty. So, yeah. Yeah, I actually, um, I put gas in my tank. Uh, maybe it was the end of February. Uh, yeah, I, I still have half a tank left. Mm. Not having jobs or an economy is wonderful for emissions control. Isn't it, though? I mean, uh, well, okay, yeah, we won't even get into that. Yeah, we're way (laughs) off topic already, and we're five minutes in. Uh, So they also started with their quote-unquote, I'm doing the air quotes here, job Mm -hmm. creation tax cut, which has been a swimming success. Uh, No, it hasn't. But they lowered the corporate tax rate by 1% out of the gate on July 1st, and then another 1% reduction on January 1st of 2020. And 
their predictions as supported actually by the School of Public Policy uh, were that eventually this would deliver 55,000 new jobs in Alberta. Um, but what is that eventuality timeline? Who knows? Like, it's 10 years. It's 10 yeah. years. Uh, well, it's looking more <laughs> like 25 or 30 now. So yeah. 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 So uh, obviously a lot of job losses. Uh, there was a fair number of job losses in the public sector and mm -hmm. those continue through the pandemic um, and in fact have accelerated. Yes. Uh, I do have a blog piece by this. I'd be remiss not to promote on <laughs> politicalrnd.ca. Um, and it actually, it's interesting that the UCP has actually in some ways accelerated some of these ideological campaign promises around cutting funding to education and to the healthcare system and reducing the call it wage burden uh, for public sector jobs. Um, just today, Edmonton Public Schools announced they were laying off 2,100 uh, support staff. And yesterday, Edmonton Catholic Schools announced that they were laying off 700. So, just yeah. keeps getting better. So many <laughs> jobs. Yeah. So much winning. Yeah. And then, of course, there was changes to education. Uh, in addition to the enrollment growth funding promise that they had promised that they were going to do, which they didn't do, um, they also rolled back the protections that were provided by Bill 24 to GSAs and LGBTQ2 students. Um, mm -hmm. Again, something that they promised and then had Minister of Culture, Lila here, go out and raise the pride flag to celebrate. Yeah. Uh, disruptions to healthcare, um, which started again far before the pandemic, but have continued uh, unabated almost. Tearing up the master agreement with the Alberta Medical Association, serving notice to Alberta's radiologists of doing the same in one year's time funding cuts and billing code changes. And we've seen quite a few rural municipalities actually where the doctors en masse have withdrawn their uh, services from emergency rooms and hospitals. And so mm -hmm. it, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in the long run when the UCP's base, which is rural, rural. largely rural in Calgary, it is affected by all these doctors taking a step back and no longer providing service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then continued pugilistic approach of the premier with the feds, um, which, uh, you know, is always a winning proposition in Alberta, regardless of the government stripe, um, including the NDP. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, uh, you know, a lot of red meat for the base of the UCP throughout the course of the summer and the fight between Justin Trudeau and Jason Kenney, including campaigning in Ontario for the Conservatives and every riding that our Premier campaigned in lost to a Liberal. As much as people complained about this happening, and I, I kind of wondered too because, you know, of course my my social media circle on Facebook is actually very conservative because I grew up in rural. So I'm still connected with the majority of those people. And my, my social media circle on Twitter is definitely more left-leaning. But, I mean, there was, there was very few things that the UCP did, at least up to the summer, that they had not promised to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the things that came after the fights with the doctors, uh, the, the 
the November budget was, or October budget, sorry. The October budget was, you know, a little shocking-ish. Uh, some of the things that had, that had come in there. It, it really, it foretold what was coming better than the fact that we ended up in a pandemic. Well, and, you know, $7 oil. Mm -hmm. Or $3 oil, depending on what day you're looking. Yeah, well, and I mean, you can kind of, that's a nice tie-in because things were relatively quiet politically throughout kind of the Christmas season and the start of the new year. Mm -hmm. um, and then the pandemic started to kind of set in. But, um, you know, I, I was writing a kind of synopsis of the last year of the UCP government. And really, it went from their summer of repeal to complete radio silence during the federal election. The mm -hmm. day after the federal election, the provincial budget drops, which, you know, didn't really help Andrew Scheer either way. But <laughs> um, and then they proceed with this budget that is like from the day it was introduced economists were saying this budget isn't worth the paper it's printed on because the assumptions are so wildly out of touch and i forget the exact number but i think trevor tomb was talking you know like maybe we should be thinking 35 37 dollar oil and the fed uh the province had planned at 58 and then within that's the like february that's february's that's budget february's too. budget yeah. yeah within 10 days oil was at like 11 dollars, 10 dollars a barrel and he's like, even my like pessimistic predictions were out to lunch. So, <laughs> well, yeah, like as much as that was such an interesting time around oil prices, because when I started looking into things, I guarantee I did a blog post on this. Uh, but when I started looking into with Saudi Arabia and Russia and kind of what had all happened right around that same week, I discovered this has actually been going on for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. The It had started in 2017, this agreement between, uh, they called it OPEC plus, because Russia is a non-member of OPEC, but agreed to, you know, work with them. And yeah, we'll, we'll reduce production because the U.S. is kind of got their own thing going on and we want to keep oil prices. So that was very interesting to me that that agreement was expected to end at the end of March anyway. So it really, to me, shouldn't have been such a surprise that there might be some, some uh, tension. Again, you know, you do a little research, you say, okay, well, this has been going on for a while. Uh, I'm assuming that oil companies knew that this was going to end at the end of March. And I just want to know if there were conversations about oil prices, because tech desperately needed uh, oil to be at a certain level in order to make the project viable. Mm -hmm. And like, that was another thing that happened, just kind of bang in, in the same week. Doesn't, doesn't that seem like a world, like a whole lifetime ago that tech pulled their yeah. uh, environmental review for the frontier oil sands mine? And that was only March. Yeah. March lasted for 25 years. So yeah. Yeah. No, it <laughs> feels like an eternity for sure. It does. Um, you bringing up the tech, though, also reminds me about the government was sued by an energy company in Calgary who has essentially a shovel-ready oil sands project for yes. Fort McMurray ready to go. And the court ruled that the cabinet had to 
give a decision on whether or not that project could proceed. And the UCP is fighting that in court. Now that's obviously going to be delayed significantly longer because essentially the courts are shut down right now. But um, mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting, this dichotomy of the UCP and the premier with this really combative approach with the feds and, you know, we need oil sands jobs, approve the tech frontier mine. While on the same time, timeline they're fighting this Alberta company that is wanting to develop uh, oil sands project and is further along with being ready to proceed with it right um, mm -hmm. because even tech CEO said that the economics of tech frontier don't really make sense at the price that oil is at right now and even if it was approved it may never proceed because it, it the cost for that mine and the break even is at such a elevated level of uh it was like 75 they yeah needed something $75 like that 75 dollars yeah, yeah yeah so, so really really high yeah um and now back to that that company that uh and i was going to try and look this up while you were talking um the company that they are withholding the approval for there is a backstory there because mm -hmm. it does go on to um some uh first nations yeah territory and apparently, there, uh, Kenny had made promises to that particular, or to the leaders, the band leaders, that, that, he, would, uh, that he would help protect this particular area. So this is, so it is, it's, it's a very weird um, problem that the UCP has. There is a little bit more to, to that one, but it's... Uh, it has not gotten much press at all. Yeah, uh, so the company is called Prosper Petroleum, That's and it. it's called the, uh, I may butcher this pronunciation, but Rigel or Rigel? I may butcher the pronunciation here, but it's either Rigel or Rigel project. It, it's interesting because part of what was holding up Tech Frontier was there was two Indigenous groups that were objecting still to the approval and some of the access issues, and in the course of about 24 to 48 hours, the Alberta government, despite knowing that tech was going to be pulling their environmental application, came to an agreement with these groups on access yes. and announced that in haste prior to tech pulling their approval, which is a really just kind of bizarre political move. Um, yeah. Obviously trying to blame the reason that it got pulled on the feds um, and not having any sort of reason to point at the provincial government and say, hey, this is why. So, Right. But when in doubt, blame a Trudeau. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And just jumping around even today, uh, and I know Mark Taylor is working on a piece on this uh, for politicalrnd.ca, about Trudeau today announcing a $1.7 billion orphan and abandoned well cleanup plan yes. and people are setting their hair on fire on twitter as they <laughs> are wont to do about buying us off with our own money <laughs> and jason kenny and brian jean and the whole cruise line for the last six years has been we've paid out 20 billion dollars more to the rest of canada than we've received in benefits we want money back we want money back and then they get money back and then they're not happy. It's just like, 
like I'm no Trudeau fan and um, I've had some very good friends block me because of my opposition to some of his uh, government's decisions. But uh, he's just damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. Like it just... And uh, I, I hope that some enterprising reporter, the next time they trot out that $20 billion in benefits line, makes an amendment Sorry. and does the math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Premier, that's 18.3 now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, too, is that I, so when I, when I saw that announcement, um, I'm wondering if there is still bailout coming for oil and gas companies, because while this relieves uh, you know, companies who have walked away, it doesn't actually put any money into oil and gas companies. Well, so it will in that it, oil services companies who will, be doing will the reclamation. need to be employed to do the reclamation. Um, well, they're <laughs> well, continuing least... to complain that not <laughs> enough is being done. That's true. And I mean... Once we like once we get past the the February budget, which was an absolute joke. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a joke before they tabled it because every like people were asking at the time, are you prepared for what is going on? Like what is happening here? And mm-hmm. so when that budget was actually dropped at fifty eight dollars a barrel, it was just like I mean Saskatchewan was holding back on their budget. They were like, we need to, you know, we need to fix some numbers before we can actually put this out. Like, that's a smart decision. It just, to me, like, I mean, we all wait for these budgets. We all were like, oh, this is their priority spending and all of this. And it, the fact that, the fact that the UCP actually put, tabled that budget and passed that budget, just let you, I guess, just really drove home for me the point that, it doesn't matter what is in the budget, which I find to be kind of a letdown. Yeah, in a lot of ways, budgets, I mean, they're aspirational. And I haven't really seen a lot of governments that have met their budgets, whether that's <laughs> they overspend or underspend. Um, and, so what you're you know, saying is, I'm an idealist expecting them to actually stick to this. What I'm saying... <laughs> That as well as <laughs> politicians going to politic, right? Oh. And like, look at the NDP. They they would release these really kind of bleak budget documents, and then they would come in better than yeah. projected all the time, right? So it was the NDP was actually quite conservative in their budgeting. They really and were. then would come in with better performance than what they had communicated, so they could say, "Hey, look, we're." we're bending the curve, we're, you know, we're bringing the budget closer to balance, we're, you know, headed in the right direction to put us on stronger fiscal footing. And, you know, they, they had three credit downgrades, three or four credit downgrades under the NDP, but the UCP's had two in one year, including one like within 48 hours of releasing this February budget. Oh. And, <laughs> like, and it was a big joke. 
Yeah. Well, and the, the credit ratings agency itself said it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on because it had completely unrealistic assumptions. Mm -hmm. It was relying exceptionally heavily on a recovery in energy prices. And I think that that's probably the biggest story out of everything with the UCP this year is that... This year? It's only April. Well, the <laughs> last year of their government. Um <laughs> isn't, you know, the job losses or, you know, some of the ideological changes to healthcare and education and whatnot. It's actually the fact that they've not only continued this Alberta legacy of relying on energy resources as a primary funder of government, but they've actually made it even more of a factor in whether or not we ever get to balance and yeah. whether or not we're able to meet our obligations. And one of the things that kind of plays into this too is, um, you know, they cut innovation tax credits. They cut tax credits for AI companies, which Alberta's like third, second or third in the world. Mm -hmm. And these are the types of things that would help with a response to COVID. They're the type of things that are going to be necessary in a three or five or $7 barrel of oil world for us to be able to meet our obligations for our social programs and the debt that we've incurred. Mm -hmm. And um, so to me, that underpins all of the other things because it's going to have a generational multi-generational effect on what Alberta's economy looks like and how sustainable our government is going to be in our government programs in the long run. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, uh, it kind of culminated uh, during that, well, that one week in the decade that was March. So when they did announce that basically they were no longer going to provide funding for uh, support staff involved in education within Three days? Was it three? I think it was three days because Jason Kenney announced that Alberta had an extra $1.5 laying around to invest in one oil project. It's yeah, the, the Keystone. Keystone XL pipeline, yeah. So one and a half to 1.7, I forget the exact number, uh, in a direct investment and then an additional $6 billion loan guarantee. Yeah. Um, yesterday, the a federal judge in the U.S. pulled the permits required for construction of that pipeline. So this thing is far from a done deal. And it's, you know, as much as conservatives like to talk about not picking winners and losers, um, they really like to bet on oil. And yeah. it, it's not been a winning bet for no. five or six years, right? Like, No. And so... The so the Montana judge and this is a this is a district court judge um, had put that order out on Wednesday, and on Thursday, TC Energy was actually headed to uh, the federal court, so the Montana the Montana Supreme Court, regarding a 2018 order that this same judge had put down. So it took them two years to end up in front of that federal court judge. Now this new order just came down the day before. Like timing wise, this was like this was definitely set up to screw over what was going on. Um, so the new order does not affect current construction near the border of uh, of Montana, or sorry, U.S. Canadian border in Montana. It doesn't affect that right now. But if they are 
if they are held back for the next two years before they get into get in front of a federal judge again, this is very problematic considering uh, that $1.5 billion investment was to keep, basically to keep this project going. Um, so shovels were in the ground on April mm -hmm. 1st in Alberta. Shovels were in the ground in Montana on April 7th. And so that, that decision came down within, within uh, one week. Yeah. One week yeah. that that order came. And the opponents of this pipeline have obviously found a judge that they know is against the project, right? And this yeah. is um, one area where I think the U.S. system, well, there's many areas where the U.S. system is deficient, but <laughs> the judges in the U.S. are very political. Um, yeah. And it's problematic because when you have a, an issue that you want to try and stop and and it's really quite surprising that, but at the same time, not that the UCP isn't aware of these potential risks and hasn't factored <laughs> in and considered pending litigation. Oh, when... oh they had taken it into consideration, <laughs> but just so you know, there's, there's always potential regulatory. Oh, sorry. Uh, quote, there's always potential regulatory and legal risk when you're making an investment. Wish I had a billion dollars to bet. <laughs> <laughs> so that came up during, I guess it would probably be Dr. Hinshaw's update. Uh, it, was, it was actually a reporter from Bloomberg asked after the press conference if he had heard about this order that was going to be problematic for continued construction of, of Keystone. And the premier said, uh, no, I haven't heard about that. And I thought at the time, well, it wasn't your one and a half billion dollars personally, was it? Because yeah. you'd think you'd be on top of that if you had just invested $1.5 billion yeah. into a project. Minor detail. Ah, oh, minor. Anyway, so, so this all kind of popped in yesterday. And I did, I did write a post for this one, uh, the UCP's one-year anniversary or first anniversary. And it did end up on a really bleak note because as I was doing all of that research, what I came up with was that there are other things going on in the U.S. right now. Uh, the big thing that hasn't really made any headlines up here, but may really affect what's going on with Keystone, is that in the U.S. right now, they're trying to stave off uh, additional bankruptcies in the oil and gas industry because bankruptcies for oil and gas were up by over 50% in Canada and the U.S., so this is not just affecting us, and this was 2019. So it was a big year, and this is, like, obviously, once the oil price war started and, and you know, the shale, the shale boom is starting to, has been starting to go down in the U.S. for a bit now. But what's going on right now market-wise is that uh, the U.S. is trying to get their oil and gas producers to reduce production. And they were recently denied $3 billion to continue buying the oil that the U.S. was producing to put in their own reserves. So that just happened. But now they're looking for money. They're trying, or sorry, the U.S. is trying to pay producers to keep it in the ground right now. Anything to not build that, like that supply gut or, or let it get worse. So that becomes a problem for Canadian oil and gas. And I realize it is a different type of oil. Shale oil only requires a little bit 
of bitumen to mix with it and make it useful for other things. So they don't actually need a lot. They do need some more, but line three will be, uh, they passed their last hurdle in Nebraska in February. So they're actually going to be in production this year. Alberta is already going to have increased capacity going into the U.S. Whether or not we still have um, an ally in Trump for getting Keystone done is debatable being that their market is, you know, doing what their, what their market is doing right now with oil yeah, and gas. I think as long as Trump's there, um, we, we have an ally just because he's just go gangbusters on development and, and energy infrastructure. So that is fine. Uh, I was listening to the Ryan Jesperson show specifically about this topic uh, before we started podcasting and he had an energy expert on and do you mean um, today or in general? Today, today. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, one of the questions he had asked was, you know, if Trump doesn't win, is this project at risk? And the president really only has any sort of influence over the transnational border crossing and the construction. And so by the time the November election rolls around, regardless notwithstanding this court decision, that construction isn't affected by it. And so whoever is president in January, it's likely going to be Trump. I think that that's the most likely outcome. But um, I think that's something we need to discuss later. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but uh, it only really matters in terms of who's president as long as this gets over the border and that should be done well before the election. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. So back because to Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the other things that's really stood out for me, and we won't dive too deep into this, is the way that the government has communicated and interacted with people in real life on social media. Uh, I thought the NDP was bad for having a lot of communication staff, but every ministry, it seems like, has an issues manager. And it seems like they create issues more than they manage them. Um, you've had the health minister who went oh. to an event with doctors and took security to segregate himself from them. And then after the changes to billing and a perceived conflict of interest between a decision to delist some services and his wife running a private healthcare benefits company, mm -hmm. one of his neighbors who he used to be on a constituency association board with shared a meme on Facebook and they went next door one night and told the kids who were playing basketball in the driveway to go inside because they weren't going to like what was about to go down and then proceeded to berate the guy in front of his wife and kids. Um, he, in conflict with privacy legislation, got doctors' private unlisted cell phone numbers and called them after hours. And just some of the, the conflict that's been stirred in the rhetoric with the issues managers, chiefs of staff, that type of stuff on social media and in real life has been really quite bizarre unprecedented unprofessional well i kind of i kind of wonder actually while you were talking about that i was thinking back to i was thinking back to before the ucp were elected and there were there were a lot of people who were very uh very offended 
by a lot of the things that the uh, that the NDP would would do and say. I'm kind of wondering if it's if it's similar. I think that the I think the issue or issues managers. I think that the way that the UCP has dealt with um, detractors is definitely more of a personal direct attack, whereas the NDP, and of course the most famous would be. Oh, I'm pretty sure that it was that it was Sarah Hoffman. It was not the sewer rat comment because that was before they were elected. No, that was after nope. they were elected. Okay, sewer so, rat was after the NDP was yeah, elected. Yeah. So, like, there are there were little things that that people took great personal offense to. You know, that was kind of an overarching comment. But I don't. But I, I kind of wonder if it was similar. Like, I, I haven't taken any personal offense to anything that the UCP has said, but I didn't for the NDP either. I'm also not a raving, rabid partisan. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I kind of wonder if, if it is, I, like, I wonder if it's comparable. I'm sure that people on both sides would say it's absolutely not comparable. The other one was so much worse or is mm-hmm. so much worse. Yeah. But, but yeah, I just, it, that's something that I, I remember at the time, right? Like, just the, the, outrage was insane yeah so i mean is it do you think it's hard to say and i mean social media twitter in particular has only been really prevalent since kind of the start of the ndp's term and i have only lived in alberta since that time right so but oh really yeah are you being sarcastic no how do i not know this Oh, that I've just... only lived in Alberta since 2015? Or that yeah. Twitter's only been that big since then? <laughs> no, that you've only lived in Alberta since 2015. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I haven't lived anywhere else oh, since okay. 2015. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. I've lived here continuously for 25 years now. Okay. So. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'll... Right. total off topic, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think when you look at you definitely do see some of it in the U S and Trump has leveraged Twitter to, you know, foment outrage, but mobilize his base as well. And so, you know, maybe I think to a lesser extent in Canadian politics, you're seeing it, but it definitely in the U S it's there and it's prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's part of the new norm for some of these populist politicians. Yeah. Um, Because you can reach mass bases mass amounts of people by saying outrageous things right and doing outrageous things and i think that some of it is strategic in that it seems to pop up when there's other things that a traditional government or traditional political situation would create scandal and Mm. it's like oh yeah well that's bad but look at this fire over here that we just (laughs) created which isn't quite as bad, but it, it's burning really bright, right? Yes. So I think that there is some strategic thought in that happening. But to have government employees attacking private citizens, um, you know, there's been name calling, there's been doxing. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, like ad hominem attacks from government employees. Um, I think that one of the press secretaries called a parent who was concerned about autism funding uh, 
pathetic mouth breather or something like that. Like that there's been some really egregious examples of just things that if you worked in communications for any sort of private or publicly traded company, your ass would be out the door so fast, but they, they've really circled around. And I mean, even our health minister, like I cannot think of a minister in any government ever as long as I've been alive, that goes to <laughs> private citizens' homes and yells at them. Uh, okay, I stand corrected. Ralph Klein in homeless shelters, <laughs> throwing money at them and telling them to get a job. But let's but yeah, not speak like, ill of the dead. <laughs> yeah, and like I, I, that's what I mean. I, I do feel like I do feel like the the UCP is doing. It's definitely a more personal, targeted attack. But just just looking back, memory wise. People took people took the sewer rats comment as a very personal attack, and and it mm-hmm. like it's, and maybe that's maybe that's just an interesting psychological comparison that they felt like they were under attack by that government, and so now they are giving it back in in what they view to be the same way. It's really not, mm-hmm. but I do believe that that they feel justified because they were attacked so greatly by the NDP having been elected. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and that's fair. And I, it's both the benefit and the disadvantage or risk of a social media communication strategy and going for sound bites is that a sound bite can really resonate and catapult your awareness and your message, but it can also spectacularly backfire. And yes. you know that we're focused on shovels and hard hats while they're focused on sewer rats comments. <laughs> um, very quippy. It and, was, it was rhymed. And, yeah, rhymed. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, definitely, I think Sarah Hoffman, if she could, would probably go back and do that day differently. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so those are the things for me that have really stood out is the doubling down on oil and gas, the poor fiscal management and planning, and just the tone of communication and relationships with the feds and with the electorate in general. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you can extend that to doctors, nurses, teachers, et cetera, but those weren't unexpected. Right. Um, What, if anything, do you think the government has done well in the past year? Um, well, I look at, I look at what the UCP promised and the thing was, you know, when you stick to jobs, economy and pipelines, it is great, but it also allows people to really focus in on the three things you said you were going to do. And the three things that they were elected to do are the three things that have honestly been some of the biggest failures. And now whether or not they will wear that, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how badly people are interested in having, uh, you know, a government who could possibly do more than three things. As, as far as their base goes, as far as their platform went and why people elected them, obviously those three things, bad, they, yeah. they've absolutely failed that, but. Man, you're really selling this government. I know. <laughs> But, but the things that they, the other things that they promised specific, you know, little things that they promised their base, get rid of the carbon tax, uh, get rid of bill 24, get rid of, or was it bill 10? Anyway, bill 24, bill 24. Right. So get rid of, you know, the things that they promised to do, um, other, 
those those little things that was really to to uh, placate some little issues that people had. They did it. So I think you know I may not uh, I may not appreciate what was behind any of that, but you have to say they promised to do this and they did it. The big things that they promised, which is why it's possible that the that Alberta is the outlier in areas, sorry, in provinces that are happy with how their premier is handling the pandemic. Um, Kenny was definitely not elected to try and get Alberta through a health pandemic. Yeah. And so, yeah. and, and this, and again, so when you pigeonhole yourself with jobs, economy, and pipelines, it's, it's very possible that no one thought he could really do anything else. And mm-hmm. he's kind of showing that, that, yeah, I mean, every time he pops in on Dr. Hinshaw's update and talks about other things, it's like, dude, just, yeah, do your own press conference, do your own thing, because we get that your job's economy pipelines. We get it. Just, like, we, we need health update right now. So Yeah, it's really interesting, because one of the things, um, I have very little respect for the premier. The only thing that I would say I have respected, and I've watched him fairly closely most of his political career, is that his work ethic is phenomenal. And that's oh, the yeah. one thing that I will say is that I don't think I've seen a politician that works harder than he does. The other thing I will say is he's historically been very good at reading a room and making smart political decisions, not Mm. smart policy decisions. But through this pandemic, um, he's kind of cracked under the pressure and he hasn't done a very good job of reading the room and being responsive. And because he's been so much about jobs, economy, pipelines, you have him popping up to talk about these things at you know, public health, times. inappropriate times and in public health briefings and his soft supporters are more concerned and focused on the pandemic and the response to it. So that's turning them off. Yeah. And then at the same time, to his credit, he is taking the steps that would be necessary to try and mitigate a full-blown disaster in this public health crisis. And that's pissing off the people who are really strident survivors uh, supporters of his who believe we should just be opening the economy. We should be locking up the old people and just let the chips fall where they may. Right. So, and you know, it's only really, it's been interesting only really his kind of core supporters and like partisan supporters I've seen are still on side. And I've talked about this a couple of times. Like I did a, a panel on the Jesperson show on 630 Chad here in Edmonton, uh, just a little over five weeks ago. And the text messages that were coming in from people that were like, you know, I voted for the UCP because I wanted no more carbon tax. We have two now. I voted for them because I wanted a budget that was headed towards balance. And we've got a bigger deficit and more debt now. Um, you know, I wanted lower taxes, but now I'm paying more for school fees and for insurance and, and property for, taxes yeah, and property and- taxes and all these things. Right. And so, you know, he's definitely been handed a situation the government has that is difficult, but every government in the world has. And it's really interesting to see how Trump's approval rating in the U.S. has gone up. I know as he's completely bungled the response and 
Kenny's done some really dumb stuff, but from a public health perspective, strictly focused on that, the response has been pretty good. I don't Mm -hmm. think he's led it. I don't think he can take credit for it. I think he'll try. It's largely been Alberta Health Services and the public health department that have done a good job with taking the steps necessary, making the case to him um, to do that. But I don't think he's going to get the credit for it. Um, And, you know, I'm perfectly fine with that because Rachel Notley, you know, took a lot of shit for stuff that she wasn't responsible for. And I think that it's really interesting to see how many UCP supporters are now figuring out that the world market and OPEC and global pandemics are things that Alberta's premier does not have control over. Right. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't like, do you, do you think that we're, how do you think the next year is going to go? If you could see my face right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think that probably what's going to happen is we're going to see a little bit of an easing of the social distancing measures, mm-hmm. but that there's going to be little hot spots that are going to continue to pop up. And I, I just think fundamentally our society is going to be changed by this. We're never going to go back completely to like, you're not going to see until we get a vaccine, at least mm-hmm. you're not going to see nightclubs that are packed shoulder to shoulder and people are dripping sweat into your mouth. Um, you're not going to see tables where in restaurants where you're crammed together so tightly that you can't even put food in your mouth without elbowing your neighbor, that type of stuff. Um, I think business fundamentally is going to have to change the way it operates. And, you know, even like I work in the restaurant industry as a consultant and, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what does 12, 18 months from now look like? Are we able to even continue to operate dine-in service? Is it going to be curbside and takeout only? Um, And I looking into that roller girls thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to see me in a mini skirt and roller skates. (laughs) Um, But uh, I just think fundamentally, A, we don't know enough to be able to answer that question yet. It really depends upon the speed and efficacy of a treatment or vaccine um, and or achieving herd immunity. But I think that what's going to happen is this is going to continue to impact us for far longer than anybody expected. It's not going to be under control for probably another, I would say, eight to 10 months. I think that life won't get back to normal as we've kind of known it, if ever, for probably another two to five years. Okay, so bring that back to the Jason Kenney government. Mm-hmm. Like, how does, how does a jobs, economy, pipelines, we don't do anything else, we, this is our strong point, uh, we cut deficit. How does that government manage through the next two to five years? Well, okay two to three years because they might not make it through. Yeah. I think that what's going to ultimately have to happen is that their hands going to be forced and they're going to have to look at innovation, machine learning, uh, you know, artificial intelligence. They're going to need to take a look at how do we deliver service to Albertans and how do we protect Albertans and pay for it. And, (laughs) You know, it's it's a conversation that in defense of the provincial government is bigger than what the provincial government is able 
to or has the resources to be able to address. And okay. I think that you're going to likely have some enhanced form of social safety net, whether that's a basic income, it, it's going to have to take some form or shape like that. Because if you've got an outbreak in a major city and you have to lock that major city down for six or eight weeks in order to get that under control, what do you do to protect the people in that city, make sure that they can still eat, that they can have a roof over their head, that type of stuff. And so I think that, you know, when you look at world war, World War II, I think it is, World War One or Two, kind of, you know, precipitated income tax and, and mm-hmm. that system. I think that this is going to have us taking a much bigger look at what truly are essential services. It's protective services, it's supply chain around food and dining, um, and medical care. And how do we fund those in a sustainable way that is going to be able to respond to future pandemics? Because this is going to continue to happen. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is how do you protect people's livelihoods when these things do pop up? And I think those are going to be the big legacies of this pandemic. And I agree. And you're still sidestepping the question because even if, so yes, these are things that should happen. These are things that should be done. Do you think that this government, that this particular government, this, this, the particular makeup of the elected officials in this government have the capacity to deliver on anything other than their wishful thinking about oil and gas? No, no, they don't. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I think they can access the resources, but they lack the political will to do so. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that it's impossible for them to find that political will. But as it stands today, and if they continue to use the approach they have, they're dead in the water. Bold, bold. Yeah. I, I, like, I agree. There's, there's things that need to change. Uh, this government was not elected to handle the govern the the situation that they have this was not the government to choose yeah um if people knew that this was coming i don't think i mean maybe they would have voted differently who knows but i think now people are looking at you know maybe a maybe a government that only cares about one thing isn't the kind of government that we need because sometimes other things happen now granted this is a once in a kind of a generational deal this is not something that happens all the time, but uh, like Kevin or uh, Blake Schaefer said during that political R and D podcast, uh, two days ago, two days ago. Oh, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that one, he said that in, in Obama's kind of exit interview after his second term, people asked him, what were you most afraid of? And apparently he had said pandemics. I don't so know if that's it, a happy note. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to sum up the one year of Alberta under the UCP in one sentence or one phrase, what would it be? The worst surprise party ever. Hmm. What, Mine would what? be over promise and under deliver. Ah, well, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. one could say most governments do that, but this one. Wow. Spectacularly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, sorry, we can't bring good news today, but <laughs> next time we'll try harder. Yes. Okay. Thanks a lot, Deirdre. Bye, Robbie. The Political R&D Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Political R&D. Mm-hmm.